right. Well, great to see everyone tonight. Very encouraging to see these groups discussing these great truths together. If you need a handout, there are several handouts being circulated through the aisles just as, as our guys go up and down the aisles. If you see them with a stack of handouts, just uh, put up your hand. We'll make sure you get one in your hands. All right. Okay, gentlemen, we are going to get started this evening. We'll get uh, in our seats and we are going to look to the Lord in a word of prayer as we continue our study here on the topic of the mind. Uh, With uh, the topic tonight especially, we ask that the Lord will give us understanding of this very, very crucial doctrine. Let's pray. Father, as we gather together as men here this evening, we are so thankful for your abundant grace to us. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here, the opportunity to enjoy the fellowship to experience what it means to be in Christ and all the blessings that flow to us through Him. We ask now that as we open Your Word and look at its contents, we pray that Your Spirit would be teaching us, that He would be taking the truths that are therein and press them deep within us, give us greater understanding of reality. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is good to be back again tonight and to continue our study on this very crucial topic of the Christian mind, more important than ever as it seems as we look at the culture around us that is losing its mind, and we even see many within the church at large seeming to lose their minds in a time like this, we are reminded of the importance to come back to the Scriptures and and study and search the Scriptures for what it teaches us as to this important topic. Last Wednesday when we gathered here, you remember, we looked at this very crucial text which serves as the foundation for our study. It justifies setting aside months to look at this topic together, and it is found in Matthew chapter 22 and that pericope from verses 24, or 34, excuse me, to to 40, where Jesus answers a question that is, that is issued to him by this legal expert in the Mosaic law, representative of the Pharisees, seeking to catch Jesus either in outright blasphemy or at least trying to catch him in some kind of legal inconsistency as it related to the Mosaic law. And the question is this, beginning in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 38, The question is this, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Now, what Jesus is requiring here is nothing short of absolute loyalty, nothing short of Radical love. And it should be natural for us 
to love our creator in this way, to recognize in him the infinite beauty of his glory, the infinite beauty of his holiness, of his goodness, of his love, of his power, of his wisdom. It should be natural for us to respond to a command like this with wholehearted devotion. It should be natural, but the reality of it is, is that it isn't. We don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. In fact, when you look at the the, the, the population on this planet, all these image bearers who have been created in God's image, the number that truly worships God through His revelation of Himself and His Word and through His Son is minuscule. Why is that? Why do we not love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind naturally? Why is this a difficult issue? Why is this even impossible on our own strength, in our own nature? And there is one word that explains this. Of course, the issue isn't with a defect in God's own character that makes him somehow less attractive in his glory and goodness and wisdom and power and holiness. No, there is no problem in in that. And there's no problem, there's no deficiency in the revelation of himself through creation, through his word, through his son Jesus Christ. There is no deficiency in that. The reason why we do not love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is summarized by this word. It is the word sin. You see, man's entire being, the natural man today, man's entire being, his material components, as like his body, as well as his non-material components, his heart and mind and soul, all of those components, material and non-material, have been corrupted by sin. Sin's particular corruption of man's mind in particular is what we call the noetic effects of sin. The noetic effects of of sin. I've mentioned already that the Greek word that is often translated as mind is the word nous. The Greek word nous. And it's from that Greek word nous that we get noetic. And so when we talk about the noetic effects of sin, we are talking about sin's devastation on the mind. What sin has done to man's mind. Now, this is a a very important topic because even today you will have Christians who will decry the fact that not enough Christians are using their minds. They will decry the anti-intellectualism of so much of Christianity which operates solely on the basis of feelings. But the problem often is, is, is that those same people who are decrying the anti-intellectualism of large portions of Christianity look in some ways admiringly at the unbeliever and his use of the mind. We cannot do that. Scripture does not let us do that. As we consider the need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it isn't that we look to the unbeliever as the example of how to use our minds. Far from it. As we're going to see tonight... We must do the opposite. 
What we see in Scripture and what we see in the text tonight is that the mind of the unbeliever, the mind of the sinner, has been affected by sin. It has been corrupted. I like what Thomas Boston wrote about the the impact of sin on, on humankind. He said this, quote, Sin is the natural man's element. He is as unwilling to part with it as fish are to come out of the water onto dry land. He is a captive, a prisoner, and a slave. But he loves his conqueror, his jailer, and his master. And because of that reality, it is impossible for the natural man to love God. It is impossible, and not only is the natural man incapable of loving God with his mind, with his heart, with his soul, he is also unable. And a great text to turn to that helps us understand this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19, and we're going to focus most of our time this evening on this text. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19, here is what the Apostle Paul writes under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. He says this, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This text is one of the most direct and concise texts that detail for us the manner in which sin has affected man's mind. This is a a key text, a classic text, as it relates to the noetic effects of sin. And as we look at this text, we're going to organize our thoughts related to this topic around three crucial observations from this text. First of all, we're going to note sin's effect on man by creating what we'll call intellectual bankruptcy. Intellectual bankruptcy. We're going to see that in verse 17 in the first part of verse 18. Next, we're going to observe that the intellectual bankruptcy of man leads consequentially to spiritual animosity, a hostility, a separation. Because of sin's impact on the mind, because of how the sinful mind operates, there is a consequential animosity that is created between man and God, between the image bearer and the creator. And then third, uh, we'll notice in the final verse of this section, verse 19, a moral degeneracy, a moral degeneracy. And, And notice as we go through this, just even as we read it, you should know the logical progression that the Apostle Paul gives. It begins with sin's effect on the mind, an intellectual bankruptcy. It then leads to this hostility, this spiritual animosity and alienation, which in turn leads to moral degeneracy. And as we're going to see and conclude tonight, what we see in the sinner, the, the 
tangible behavior, the observable behavior, is not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is going to go all the way back to the intellectual bankruptcy and sin's effect on the mind. Now let's look at the first of these, man's intellectual bankruptcy, the sinner's intellectual bankruptcy. And this is what we read in in the first verse and a half of this section of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul gives this command. He says that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding. Paul here refers to the Gentiles. He's addressing the church in Ephesus. Now understand this. According to ethnicity, most of those in the Ephesian church would have been by ethnicity Gentiles. But Paul uses the term Gentiles here in verse 17 not to refer to an ethnicity But he uses it as a metaphor to speak of unbelievers. Those who have not been made alive. Go back to chapter 2. And you read in the first several verses of chapter 2, which is another key text to turn to when we look at sin's effects. You have the first three verses of chapter 2 describing the lost plight, the dead plight of man. And then you have that great but God statement. But God made us alive. So who are the Gentiles? We can define them in this context of Ephesians 4 as those who have not been made alive. They're still in the deadness of their sins. And Paul says to these Ephesians, he says, you are not to walk as the unbelievers, as the sinners walk. And the word walk there, the verb, is an idiomatic expression. Paul loves to use it. It refers to a way of life. It refers to everyday behavior. It refers to a man's habits, how he lives his life day to day. This is not just an unusual event. This is common everyday experience. And so Paul is saying here, do not walk as, as they do. You have been saved. You have been made alive. Therefore, you cannot walk in the same manner, the same pattern as the unbeliever. And when Paul makes that command to the Ephesians, he then now launches out into this description of why it is so unthinkable that a believer would walk according to the way of the unbeliever. And this gives us this opportunity to, 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 to diagnose the state of the unbeliever. And that's exactly what Paul does. The Apostle Paul here now will give us an authoritative diagnosis of the state of every unregenerate human being. So how does he do this? How does he describe the unregenerate man? Notice what Paul says. He says that they walk, they have their everyday experience, quote, in the futility of their mind, end quote. Now that phrase there is important because it describes for us the sphere in which the unbeliever walks. It describes the the, the sphere in which he lives out his everyday life. He lives it out in this futility. Now what is futility? The, The word there for futility refers to purposelessness. It refers to fruitlessness, emptiness, transitoriness, vanity. Now, it's not that the unbeliever will have no objectives in life. In fact, some unbelievers can have some pretty serious goals. We're not talking about temporal things. 
Paul is giving a transcendent diagnosis, a diagnosis in the courtroom of God. And the unbeliever in his walk, he lives according to or in the sphere of this purposelessness, this vanity. And this vanity is specifically tied to the mind. This is where it really takes place. This is the most important description right here in the futility of their mind. The mind, as we've already defined, is is that faculty of thinking. It describes a way of thinking. It describes an attitude. It describes a disposition, a way of making judgments. You could say that the mind here, the word noose, refers to the worldview of the man, how he looks upon himself, how he looks upon the world around him, how he looks upon God, and how he interprets those observations. That's all part of the man's mind. And Paul says this, Paul says, the unbeliever walks, he lives his life in an emptiness, in a fruitlessness, in futility of his thinking, of his worldview. That is the unbeliever's sin has rendered the unbeliever's capacity for judgment, for interpretation, for discernment. Sin has rendered it empty. Now understand, again, this is not speaking of the brain. Paul is not speaking here of IQ. Some unbelievers can be extremely intelligent according to that IQ system of denoting intelligence. Paul is talking about more than that. He's talking about the worldview, the basis for making judgments, discernment. And Paul says it is empty. Sin has made it vain, fruitless. And not only that, Paul goes on to say this. They walk not only in the futility of their mind, but also they walk being darkened in their understanding. Being darkened in their understanding. This is the cause of this lifestyle on the part of the unbeliever. It explains why he lives the way he does. It explains why he rejects the gospel. It explains why he makes his moral decisions, why he judges things the way he does. Why? Because they are darkened in their understanding. The word for darkened describes darkness. It describes gloom, a cloudedness. And and the word understanding is the word dianoia. It's the same word for mind that we saw back in Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus said you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your dianoia, with all your mind. That same word is used in our text here to refer to understanding. Again, it's a synonym with the word mind, nous, that we see in the previous phrase here in, in, in Ephesians 4. It refers to that faculty of comprehending. It, it refers to the activity of reasoning. And Paul says that reasoning is dark. Sin has rendered the unbeliever's reasoning warped. The picture is of a a person in the darkness with no light, groping around trying to find his way, and he can't. 
That's the picture of the unbeliever according to the authoritative words of the apostle Paul. Now, it would seem like based on how many Christians view the state of the unbeliever, that this is just a rare statement in Scripture. It would seem that the way that unbelievers are so admired by many Christians, not just for their academic accomplishments, but for their lives, how many Christians look to unbelievers as heroes, it would seem that the Bible really doesn't speak that often about the noetic effects of sin. But when you look at Scripture, the doctrine of the noetic effects of sin the teaching that the unbeliever's understanding is darkened and that he walks with his mind in in futility, it is actually one of the most emphasized doctrines in Scripture. It is an undeniable doctrine, although often we will ignore it. We see it throughout the Old and New Testaments. You go right to the very opening chapters of the Bible. After sin has made its entrance in Genesis chapter 3, just a few Chapters later, in chapter 6, you read one of the most devastating diagnoses you'll find anywhere of the human condition, and notice how it focuses on the mind. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, every intent, of the thoughts of his heart, the thoughts, was only evil continually. That is absolute. All, only, continually. You could look at Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, a text that's also repeated later on in in the Psalter, and then quoted by Paul in Romans 3, verse 11. We read this, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there, are, if there are any, any who understand, who seeks after God. Notice the focus on the mind and understanding and its involvement in seeking after God. And what is the answer to that question, that search? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. When you turn to the New Testament, you have texts like Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For, all, for even though they knew God, there's the mind, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 This one's speaking of the Jews. Their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. You could look at Titus chapter 1 verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Now, texts like these describe the the great epistemological devastation brought about by sin. Now, what is epistemology? When we talk about epistemology, it's a a fancy term 
that refers to something that is foundational to our existence as human beings. Epistemology refers to the investigation of the methods, the scope, and the validity of knowing things. Epistemology, the study of how we know things. And when we read these texts, we find that over and over and over again, they emphasize this this fact unequivocally, that sin has left a great, a catastrophic, a radical, a complete epistemological devastation in the mind of the sinner. These terms, these these words that we've been studying in Ephesians 4 and, and even in the other texts that we've just cited, these, these verses that speak of the noetic effects of sin, they're not used to describe some obscure clan somewhere in ancient times that were characterized by these verses. No, these verses describe both Jew and Gentile. In other words, all ethnicities. These terms describe both the elite and the commoner. In other words, those who are in power are just as depraved as those who don't have the power. And it describes the religious and the secular. Those who say there is no God and those who have a zeal for God but without understanding. The reality of it is they describe every single son of Adam. Every single one of Adam's offspring have been impacted by his sin And that sin has left its undeniable mark on the functioning of the mind. And notice this also. These descriptions describe not just the pollution of our senses, but the faculty of judgment itself. I'll refer to this a little bit later, but there are some brands within Christianity that will acknowledge the sin of Adam, and they will also acknowledge the impact of sin on the person, but will limit... the impact of sin to the senses. That our problem is sensuality, but our minds are still okay. These texts make it very clear, no, our minds have been corrupted, not just our senses. This This is the history of mankind. This paints the picture of all members of the human race. Now, in asserting this, we do not contend that every single sinner will think the worst thoughts all the time and that he will always act out the worst of thoughts. When we talk about the noetic effects of sin, we're not saying that there are no moral sinners. We're not saying that there are no sinners who can live respectable lives as it relates to the community at large. When we talk about the noetic effects of sin, we're not saying that every man therefore thinks all the very worst thoughts possible and automatically acts upon all those thoughts. That's not what we mean by the noetic effects of sin. Rather, I, I, I like how Herman Bavinck described it. He said it in these words, quote, The teaching of Scripture is not that every human lives at all times in all possible actual sins and is in fact guilty of violating all of God's commandments. It only refers to the deepest inclination. 
The innermost disposition, the fundamental directedness of human nature and confesses that it is not turned toward God, but away from him. That's what we mean. And in fact, this is the, this is the nature of, of sin's impact on the mind. Sin has impacted us in the most secret of places, in the most unseen areas of our being, and so we can do a great job of covering that all up. In fact, this is how the deceitfulness of sin works. Sin can be of of such deceitfulness and of, of such malicious purpose that it will take thoughts, make them evil, but then disguise them as good, so that when the person actually acts upon his thoughts on the one hand it looks like he's doing some great work of charity he's giving to the poor he is helping someone in need well at the same time in the depth of his being the thought is evil he is doing that for his own pride and he's doing that because he believes in his own goodness and refuses the testimony of scripture that he's a sinner That's how the noetic effects of sin work. They can can disguise themselves very cleverly. And it's also important to note, too, that, yes, the unbeliever can do great things in this world. He can build an amazing building. He can can design a a beautiful cathedral. He can paint an amazing portrait of of nature on on a canvas, He can find a cure for disease. He can perform open-heart surgery. He can put together all the inner workings of the New York Stock Exchange. He can balance his checkbook. He can reassemble a car and make it work. But it's important to note that the closer the area of knowledge gets toward God himself the more his suppression and distortion of truth intensifies. Think of it this way. Think of it as a graph. I want to picture this for you. Think of it as a graph. On the one hand, you have a a scale that shows the intensity of sin's effects on the mind. And then on the bottom, you, you have the proximity of an area of knowledge to the one true God. Now, as the person, as the sinner thinks, as he thinks thoughts that do not directly address the character of God, he will be minimal in his distortion of truth. But as he continues to think about things as they get closer to God, he will distort and suppress the truth in increasing intensity. So think of this way. You can talk to an unbeliever about the lifespan of fruit flies, and he'll tell you true things. Then you talk to him about the life of a preborn baby, And the intensification of the noetic effect of sin kicks into high gear. That baby is an image bearer. And in that unbeliever's sinful mind, he refuses to acknowledge that. Supports abortion. The murder of preborn babies. But then you talk about the life of the triune God. And that unbeliever will kick into an even higher gear of the intensity of his suppression of truth. The intensity of the noetic effects will will kick into their highest gear and he will suppress truth. He will blaspheme and deny the most clearest statements of God's word over that issue. 
comes down to this. As Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He has both the unwillingness and the inability, the inability to do so, and he's guilty of both. Now, that's his spiritual or or his intellectual bankruptcy. Now, let's look at what Paul also says about the man, the unbelieving man, and his mind and his consequences. Notice now the second half of verse 18 in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul goes on to describe the unbeliever this way. He is, because of his thinking, he is excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Now, Paul says that the unbeliever is excluded. And that word for excluded has the idea of estrangement and alienation. It describes an ongoing state of hostilities, and this has all been perpetuated by the presence of sin and and its effect on the thoughts. Man, in his natural state now, does not think God's thoughts after him, but thinks God's thoughts against God. He tries to take all that God has revealed in creation, and even in the Bible, and turn them against God. That is the unbeliever who rejects the gospel. As a result, he is estranged. He is alienated from the life of God. And and that phrase, from the life of God, has the idea of from the life which comes from God. We know from Romans chapter 6 verse 23 that the wages of sin is what? Death. It is alienation. It is spiritual death because of his sinful thoughts, not even because of his sinful deeds, but just because of his sinful thoughts, his corrupt thoughts, the man is dead. He's estranged. He's alienated. God is the source of life. We could look at Psalm 36 verse 9 where the psalmist says, for in you is the fountain of life. And we as believers understand this, all of our life is connected to God We only live because he gives us that life. And we talk about regeneration wherein God gives us the gift of life. And it happens to be eternal in nature. But the unbeliever does not enjoy that. He has been cut off. The life cord has been severed. He has no connection to spiritual vitality, to the life which comes from God. You could even look at a text like John 1 verses 3 to 4. All things came into being through him, that is, the word. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now, the unbeliever, therefore, Paul says, has no true spiritual vitality. He can put on the front. He can put on the disguise that he is spiritual, He can look very religious, but in reality, we must understand what Paul says. The one who rejects the gospel is one who is cut off from the life of God. Now, notice also what Paul says here. He introduces some reasons to this. First of all, he says that the unbeliever is cut off from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in him. Now, when we look at that term ignorance... 
It is not a reference to something that someone was innocently unaware of. Paul is not speaking here that they just don't have some information. If they did, it would all be better. That's not what he's saying when he uses the term ignorance. The ignorance here is a culpable ignorance. The ignorance here is is a willful ignorance, a willful refusal to accept or to learn the truth. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, we read that God has made himself known. His revelation of himself in creation is evident. There is no one who has not seen this. And yet, what does man do? He claims ignorance. He suppresses that truth. He pretends it doesn't exist. He denies that it exists. And he claims ignorance. But this is depraved indifference. This is willful refusal. But not only that, Paul says, the the, the unbeliever is excluded from the life of God because of that ignorance, that refusal to learn the truth, but also because of the hardness of their heart. Now, I've said before that the mind is is linked and intertwined with the heart. The heart is mission control center where the mind functions. And now Paul explains that that mission control center where the mind is active, it is calloused. It is calloused. Hardness there refers to a state of impenetrability. Nothing gets through, no matter how sincere no matter how effortful, nothing gets through. It's, it's like cement. It's, it's like the calcium that binds bones together. It, it's like the mortar that you use to put bricks together in a wall. It is impenetrable, and that describes mission control center. And so the scriptures trace the alienation of the unbeliever to this reality and says, you know what, it arises from the thoughts, those thoughts then lead to estrangement, a position of alienation. Our thoughts are biased, our thoughts are anti-God thoughts, and therefore we are alienated. Romans chapter 8 verses 5 to 8 explains this using a little bit different terminology but the same concept. Here Paul says this, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice here too, Paul brings in the concept of the mind. He brings in the concept of hostility. He brings the concept of life being attached to those who think according to the spirit. Death is what is attached to the mind that thinks according to the flesh, to sin. So we have man's his, spirit, or his, his intellectual bankruptcy, we have man's spiritual animosity, and now we have man's moral degeneracy. Where does this all lead in Paul's diagnosis? Where does this all go? Notice verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 4. And they, having become callous, 
have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Here Paul summarizes the end result. He moves, first of all, from that intellectual bankruptcy in verses 17 to 18. And and then he refers to the resulting alienation in the second half of verse 18. And now he speaks of the outcome. Now he speaks of the, the manifestation of all of this. As all these evil thoughts and this alienation come to full term, what does it look like? What does it look like in, in, in real life? And Paul describes it. He says they become callous. They become callous. That means they've ceased to be able to feel pain. They have no operational sensitivities. It speaks of a moral apathy. They just don't care. The unbeliever cannot even recognize the damage his thinking, his sinful thinking, is having on his own life. He is past that point. He has lost sensitivity. He's like the stereotypical drug addict. He, he always thinks the next evil thought, which will give birth to the next evil deed, will finally give him what he's looking for, and it'll make all things better. And he just keeps coming back after each failed attempt. He's callous to how it's killing him. Paul continues, he says this, they have become callous, having given themselves over, having given themselves over to sensuality. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul says, they, that is the Gentiles, the sinners, have given themselves over. It speaks of self-abandonment. Now, we're familiar with this phraseology because back in Romans chapter 1, specifically in verses 24, 26, and 28, Paul speaks of how God gives the unbeliever over to their sensuality. You can look at those texts on your own. You can see that that in response to the suppression of the truth in their thinking, God gives them over to these moral behaviors. Here, however, the same writer, Paul, says that the sinner himself is the one who gives himself over. So what we see here, by looking at those two texts, is how God's punishment works hand in glove with the sinner's will. You see, as God gives the sinner over to the consequences of his evil thinking, it is exactly what the sinner wants. As sinners experience the consequences of their moral actions, they may regret some aspects of it, but it is exactly what they wanted. It is not that God gave them over to sensuality, though they themselves were trying to think somehow differently. No, Paul says in reality, hand in glove, the believer abandons himself and God abandons the unbeliever. And as a result, their deeds are manifested. Their deeds are manifested and God gives the sinner over to that which the sinner himself wants. His evil thoughts come to full term in this array of sinful behaviors and Paul lists them there. The word sensuality refers to that which is not acceptable. Elsewhere where Paul uses the term it always refers to sexual immorality but it seems here Paul is just referring to that which is given to the flesh whatever that may be and then he qualifies that 
by saying every kind of impurity with greediness. The word for impurity, yes, that word is sexual in nature. And the word greediness, of course, has to do with the pursuit of pleasure in other areas. This is the end result. As evil thoughts conceive, this is what happens and this is what explains our culture today. God is giving them over to, to the, 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 the citizens of this culture. God is giving them over to exactly what they want. And the outcome is devastating. Now, how do we respond to all of this? Let me give you, as we close, five, five responses that are forced upon us by this doctrine of the noetic effects of sin. Five responses, and I'm sure you could add more, but let me close with these five. Number one, remember that the sinner is never intellectually neutral. Any sinner that you talk with, any unbeliever, regardless of whether they are morally respectable persons in the community, whether they are really religious, or whether they are an atheist, living in the most horrible kinds of sin. There is no neutrality among unbelievers. They are not intellectually neutral. They are always operating as a result of the effects of sin. John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew describe it this way. Man's spiritual state is not one of relative neutrality in which he is able to accept or reject God and his gospel. He is an active hater of God who cannot accept spiritual truth. You need to remember that. And this is the divine diagnosis, as we've seen in Ephesians 4. Any time that you interact with an unbeliever, one who has not been made alive by the Spirit of God, one who does not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who does not confess him as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, any time you're talking with such a person, remember, there's no neutrality. None. There's no innocence of thinking. None. Always moral bias and intellectual bankruptcy. And so we have to get rid of this idea that the unbeliever is like water and oil. There's this thinking going around that that you can kind of compare the unbeliever to this glass that is filled with water and then oil, and, and the oil represents sin's corruption. The water represents what is good and wholesome in a man. And they're distinct. And a lot of Christians view the unbeliever this way. The Bible says no. Sin's pollution has affected man completely. All aspects, including his mind. Number two, recognize that even the sinner is a theologian. Even the sinner is a theologian. All men have a sense of God. Romans 1 makes that very clear. Calvin called it the sensus divinitatis. A sense of God. Every man has a sense of God. Every man thinks thoughts about the one true God. It is just that those thoughts are corrupted. Every man is a theologian. As I said, you could look at it in Romans 1, verses 18 to 23. It's, it's very clear that God has made himself known 
And the unbeliever suppresses that truth and refuses to give honor to his creator. All men know God. They entertain thoughts about God, but they're hateful. They construe God wrongly in their thinking. Every man is a theologian. And so no sinner that you come across ever needs to be introduced to the concept of God. No sinner needs to be convinced that he exists. No, he does. He exists. He is known. The sinner needs to be confronted in what he does with that knowledge. Number three, resist looking to sinners to solve life's most basic problems. Yes, as I said, sinners can manufacture amazing things. They can build skyscrapers and put men on the moon. They can cure diseases and perform open-heart surgery. But we do not trust the unbeliever with life's most basic questions. Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? What is wrong with me? And how do I solve that? In light of what Paul teaches us, We must never go to the unbeliever, must never go to an unbelieving source for answers to these most basic life questions, to these most transcendent issues. And so that means we must realize the government is corrupt. We must realize a political party doesn't solve our basic human problems. Don't put your hope there. We don't find it in courts In human courts and in in, in judges, we don't find it in therapists. We don't find it in educators. We don't find it in social movements, in health directors. We don't find it in the wise men of this world. As Paul says elsewhere, they are foolish in God's eyes. Why would we look there? And of course, it's easy to do that. It's easy to look to those who seem esteemed in, in culture to provide us with answers to these most basic questions. We must remember, sin has affected the unbeliever's mind. He will not give you the truth. Just today, I was reminded about the impact of sin on the mind as it relates to the current director of the National Institutes of Health. His name is Francis Collins. He is a professing evangelical, and he's looked up uh, to by many within the evangelical world as this great paragon of intellectual life, especially claiming to be an evangelical at the same time. And this is a quote from Francis Collins, and it shows us the corruption of sin At this level, he wrote this back in June. Dear NIH family, National Institutes of Health, each June, the National Institutes of Health joins the rest of the country in celebrating Pride Month and recognizing the struggles, stories, and victories of those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and others under the sexual and gender minority, SGM, umbrella. I applaud the courage and resilience it takes for individuals to live openly and authentically, 
particularly considering the systemic challenges, discrimination, and even violence that those and other unrepresented, underrepresented groups face all too often. As a white, cisgender, and heterosexual man, I have not had the same experiences, but I am committed to listening, respecting, and supporting those individuals as an ally and advocate. I know that developing allyship is critical as we continue to make NIH and the world a more inclusive place for all. This is the effects of sin on the mind. Number four, realize sensuality isn't the sinner's primary dilemma. Sensuality is the outworking of something that is much more ominous, something that is much more severe. We we, we cannot just focus our efforts. In fact, we must not just focus our efforts on behavior modification. That is not what the gospel is about. It's not our mission in this world to try and modify the external outworking of of someone's thoughts. That's like trying to drain the ocean with a thimble at a time. Pointless. Our focus isn't the external sensuality. Our focus is the internal thinking. The thoughts... Albert Moeller uh, describes this well as he contrasts the difference of understanding the noetic effects of sin between the Protestant reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. And he writes this. This is one of the, most, uh, this is one of the many pr- points of contrast between the reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, which believes in original sin and its multiple effects of the fall, but does not believe that our reason was in any way fatally impaired by the fall. Instead, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the main effect of the fall was upon our senses. Therefore, for Roman Catholics, sensuality is the characteristic in which most persons see themselves as sinners. The Reformers believed, in contrast, that the Bible speaks clearly to the fact that there is an intellectual fall, end quote. You see, here's the thing. As we interact with people of this world Indeed, we are to call them to repentance for behaviors. But our ultimate, our ultimate challenge to them in repentance has to do with the mind. Metanoia. Change of mind. And so these other manifestations are not important to us. We must get to the mind. We must address the gospel to the mind. What is most needed by that unbeliever is to have a spiritual transformation in his innermost being, in his worldview. And that, in turn, will lead to a modification of his behavior. Finally, number five, rejoice that God's gift of salvation restores the mind. We're going to talk about this next Wednesday, but we'll end with this. We sang that hymn earlier this evening, O Great God. Let me read stanza two because it explains what we're talking about here and the need for transformation at the level of the thinking. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, Did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, 
opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son gave me endless hope and peace. Turn back to Ephesians 4 as we close. Paul is going to summarize what I just read from that hymn in one simple statement. After he has described the noetic effects of sin in verses 17 to 19, as he reminds the converted, regenerated Ephesian church that they were not to live this way because this is how the unbeliever is, he then makes this statement in verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. You did not learn Christ. That statement summarizes what we read in stanza two of that hymn, O Great God. It, 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 it summarizes what Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were dead in our thinking, God made us alive. He restored the capacity of the mind and all of a sudden, in that glorious moment, the mind worked and we saw in Christ the infinite beauty of God. And for the first time, we loved our creator. That is what we need. That is what our culture needs. That is what your next door neighbor needs. Take this gospel to them. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded of what we once were. These words describe us at a past point in time. We were these Gentiles. We walked in futility of the mind. We were darkened in our understanding, excluded from life with you. Characterized by willful ignorance, calloused, self-abandoned to the sinfulness of our thoughts. That describes us. But we're thankful that you did not leave us in that state. But you made us alive. May you always keep this remembrance on our minds not to take our minds back into those sinful ways of life to bring back all those memories, but may you keep it in our memories to remind us, Father, from where you've saved us. To keep us humble. and To keep us motivated. To go to the world. Not nitpicking behaviors, but aiming at the heart, defining for them where their their problem is and bringing the solution in your gospel. And as we do that, Father, we pray that your spirit would go with us and in the same way that we've been granted life, grant that to them too. And we thank you, Father, that what you've done in our lives have enabled us now to love you to engage in this most wonderful activity of loving you with our heart and our soul and our minds. 
We confess that we are not yet there where we can say we do it with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds. We're on the path and oh, we look forward to that day when you will bring this all to a conclusion and we can obey that commandment of Jesus with perfection. We long for that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.